1: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This episode is with Dan Hanner. He wrote an amazing series of pieces for season projections for Sports Illustrated, and he also has written for Real GM for a long time, which is how I originally came in contact with him. He is fabulous. We talked for about 35 minutes on college basketball, the top teams, some potential breakout teams and players, and... Everything in between, and it's so much fun to talk to him because he has such a great grasp of college basketball, and I admittedly, when the season starts, generally do not. So for me, it's a way of clarifying my own thoughts and also getting his out there because his thoughts are valuable to have. So as I said, it runs about 35 minutes. I absolutely loved having him on. Hope you enjoy it too. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So we're at the beginning of another college basketball season, and I figure the best place to start is the Champions Classic that's coming up. What are you looking forward to seeing there?
0: It's, it's really funny. For for once this year, we're not talking about how ridiculously young Kentucky is at every position and how we really need to give them time because they'll be better in March than they are you know right now. For, for once, we're talking about uh, Kentucky in a different way, which is the platoon system and how sort of... Ridiculous that all is to see players as talented as Carl Towns rotating out every four minutes from the basketball game. But it's, you know, so far I think the verdict on the platoon system is not working all that well. So it'll be really interesting to see if Kalapari even sticks with it here in the first.
1: Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. So we're at the beginning of another college basketball season, and I figure the best place to start is the Champions Classic that's coming up. What are you looking forward to seeing there?
0: It's, it's really funny for for once this year, we're not talking about how ridiculously young Kentucky is at every position and how we really need to give them time because they'll be better in March than they are, you know right now. for For once, we're talking about uh, Kentucky in a different way, which is the platoon system and how sort of ridiculous that all is to see players as talented as Carl Towns rotating out every four minutes from the basketball game. But it's, you know, so far, I think the verdict on the platoon system is not working all that well. So it'll be really interesting to see if Calipari even sticks with it here in the first game against a uh, real competition. I mean, the the reason coaches don't do this generally is simply because, you know, having some continuity on the basketball floor is a good thing, and, you know, players need to just get a little rhythm, start sweating a little bit, get the adrenaline going, sometimes to, to reach their full potential, and they're not necessarily doing that right now. So it'll be interesting to see how Kentucky does against the Kansas team Then also, you know, didn't necessarily look great in their opener, but has a lot of strong front court players as well. I mean, if anybody in the country has a front court that can match up with Kentucky, you know, Kansas certainly has some of the big bodies uh, to do that. So uh, it'll be interesting how Cliff Alexander matches up, Um, Perry Ellis, who I think certainly Kansas thinks is going to be one of the top players in the the country this year, how how they're able to contain the waves of Kentucky players that are coming in and out of the ballgame.
1: Yeah, and waves is a good term for it because what makes Kentucky so weird is that they have an immense amount of talent, but also splitting it into two groups, to me, makes it, uh, makes it so that you're having to do these fit issues because you have to, if you're playing almost all your minutes with the same people, yeah, that can build chemistry, but also any flaws get magnified.
0: Yeah, and we saw that the nobody reached double figures in the, the starting five for Kentucky, or, or, you know, the primary five they were using in their last game against Buffalo. And, you know, I mean, one of the things that the coaching staff said is they've hired a statistician to sort of present the – half the game stats in order to, to still market for NBA teams that, you know, just because they're playing less minutes at these players would still be productive on a per 40 minute basis. But, you know, if Carl Towns is going to foul out in uh, 10 minutes of play, uh, that's not really going to work even if you extend it out to 40 minutes. So, uh, I don't know. You know, I certainly think the platoon system, you know, can work, especially having, you know, just in terms of wearing the other team down, you know, you're able to really give it your all the whole game. But, you know, that's that's also an issue with a relatively young team is teaching them right away to that. You know, you have to give it all every single possession where that isn't necessarily the natural inclination of a freshman who's out on the basketball floor.
1: Yeah, it's definitely true. The other issue that I see with it is how do you figure out who closes games and all of that. I don't think they need a statistician to pitch it to the NBA, but I just think that it's going to be hard to calibrate, not statistically, but just in terms of the eye test.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, um, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, in the long run, I don't think anybody thinks it will last. It's just that we're all wondering how long it will last. And, you know, I think there's a good reason to believe it will last in at least some form until SEC play gets underway, just so that, you know, they get a chance to evaluate even internally – you know how different players play together, and and with most of the games being games they should win relatively easily, they'll be able to do that. I mean, I think at the end of the game, what you will eventually see is that college basketball is a game that needs multiple guards to be on the floor at once. It's just, you know, its size is really sort of overrated and. Having uh, Trey Lyles and uh, Alex Poitras play at the wing position isn't necessarily their natural position. So I think you'll see lineups with Tyler Ulis and the Harrison Twins out on the floor in crunch time of really important games along with whatever big guys are playing the best. I mean, I sort of assume Will Colley-Stein will be one of those, at least on the defensive end, but you might even sub him out offensively um, if one of the other big guys is playing really well. But so certainly, yeah, I I think that's the type of lineup you'll see in – end-of-game situations, but uh, no, it, 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 it'll be interesting, you know, something different to talk about at least.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and the other component of it is that we can't fail to mention how ludicrously talented this Kentucky team is, either if you want to think about it in terms of collegiate talent or if you want to think about it in terms of NBA talent.
0: Yeah, well, in Speaking of teams that are ludicrously talented, uh, Duke has to fall into that category in the other game of the Champions Classic, which looks a little bit less appealing just because I think Michigan State is not quite as far along as in some years. They don't quite have the talent. They they lost quite a few of their, their upper-class um, players. I think one of the Michigan State alums that I've – that, that I like to talk to is sort of saying hashtag football school right now that Michigan State, you know, is taking pride in their football resurgence uh, and not so worried about their, their basketball, not necessarily being, you know, a super elite team this season, but Duke is going to be scary. I mean, they, you know, <laughs> it, it goes to show you that sometimes the idea isn't just to have talent, but to have talent that complements one another together. And when you have one of the best, you know, basically the best center in the country and Jaleel Okafor And you can put players around him and you have who who basically are, are shooters across the board and who can attack the basket and score off the board and just create this incredible spacing. Granted, they've just been crushing, you know, relatively small teams to start the season, but you know, everybody certainly thinks in the long run that this is going to be a great formula for a dynamite offense in general. I mean, you know, I, I hear all this people saying that there's a conflict between having, you know, Tyus Jones and Quinn Cook on the floor at the same time because they're both point guards and stuff like that. But it's like, look, you know, this is college basketball. They're not going to be playing a ton of teams that have, you know, six foot seven off guards. They can afford to have, you know, two point guards on the floor in a lot of situations. And you know, you got two point guards who can shoot, play off the ball, and who can feed the, the ball to Okafor and find players like Grayson Allen who. You know, certainly is maybe the seventh man in the Duke rotation. And for a lot of teams, the way he looks, you know, he could, he could very well be their second or third best player. So, you know, uh, Kentucky is certainly not alone in, in being a loaded team. Um, just, you know, randomly jumping off. On the, uh, you know, in terms of playing two, two guys who are point guards slash combo guards, that was another thing we did see on the opening night of the season was Louisville taking on Minnesota and really how well Terry Rozier and Chris Jones um, could play off one another, even though they're basically, you know, a very similar uh, type of player. They both have good ball handling skills. They both can shoot and play well off the ball, and and they, you know it really shows when you have two players who are complementary like that how difficult it is to defend because you know you can't you can't just assume I'll stop this guy from driving, I'll stop this guy from shooting because they can mix and match so well. The other thing I would say about Louisville from watching that uh, that opener is. Getting after it defensively, and and how much uh, even Minnesota taking the ball up the court, Rozier and and Jones were able to really get in their the, the Gophers face and, and just uh, and just have incredible on-ball pressure. I mean, there's a reason that Rick Pitino is a Hall of Fame basketball coach, and that's you know the, it's it's that defensive tenacity side of the ball, and that's that's really the interesting thing to look for, I think, in the championship Champions Classic is which of those teams are able to bring that side of the ball. Because we know they all have offensive talent, but who's really going to have the effort and the energy to defend at a high level?
1: And that's exactly why I'm so fascinated by Justice Winslow because his defensive versatility, if Krzyzewski uses him right, could make the two-point guard system work, because if you can slide him on the other team's best perimeter player, let's say, or let's say their best two through four, somewhere in that range, that gives you so many more options in terms of how you use the other guys offensively.
0: Exactly. No, and it, it's, that versatility is great. I mean, just, you know, as I'm thinking of, you know, the Louisville example, it's like Montrez Harrell looks fantastic in that open game in that he's, inc- you know, incredible around the basket, but he also has developed suddenly this incredible three-point shot. But Justice Winslow is the kind of guy who can match up with somebody like that who has, you know, quickness, athleticism, and an outside shot. But he can also match up against a smaller, speedier guard, and you know, be be ready to to block that shot when he drive, when that player drives to the basket. So it's he. There's no question he's an X-factor, and that's that's what I'm saying. You know, Grayson Allen is probably you know the seventh best player on a Duke team. You know, Winslow's somewhere in that six. You know, Rashid Suleiman, who was uh, you know, I mean, is a fantastic three-point shooter, but maybe doesn't play quite as good defense. Is, is definitely in that top six. I mean, the top seven for for Duke really right now just looks incredibly, incredibly scary, and and that's, you know, it's it really is, I mean, that's that's the thing you have to consider, is it really is about who are your best seven players. It's not about who are your best, you know, 10 or 11 players, and and that may be why Duke is much more better positioned to, to build chemistry, to have the right rotation, and, and to go far late in the year.
1: And what makes, to me, Duke and Kentucky stand out, and you could put Wisconsin in that group, too, to a degree, is that there are teams that are really deep, one to seven, though Wisconsin's deep in a different way, obviously, and they're also strong at the top. You know these aren't, these aren't teams where you're sitting there going, "Oh, everybody's good. It's that everybody's good and the top is great." And when I look for a tournament team, that's the type of thing that I look for.
0: No, they, and that's exactly right, and, and that's that's totally the profile for Wisconsin as well. I mean, we, we certainly saw it last year in the tournament where Frank Kaminsky was basically unguardable, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, teams are obviously going to game plan a lot this year over, you know, what they need to do to get the ball out of his hands, but the problem with Wisconsin is is they just surround him, you know, with so many shooters who, who can just, you know, knock down open threes, um, and Trayvon Jackson is he's a really underrated point guard for them, um, in terms of making things happen, and so it's Wisconsin will definitely be up there. Arizona is obviously the other team we haven't talked much about. Who you know uh, we sort of peg as a Final Four team uh, with the stuff we did over at SI. You know Arizona, I think it's going to be more on the defensive end. But um, you know you talk about people like Justice Winslow. I mean a, a player like uh, Hollis Jefferson for for Arizona is again one of those versatile defenders who can really shut anybody down, play a lot of positions. And, and it's really, you know, Arizona's size and flexibility defensively that maybe makes up for the fact that they don't necessarily quite have, you know, the top high-end shooters uh, that some of the other teams do. But, they, they you know, getting Brandon Ashley back from uh, injury was huge. I think he had a big game in the opener, um, and, you know, you, you can't come count them out of the equation either.
1: Yeah, I mean, Arizona, they're, they're the type of team that I, I feel like in a one-off tournament will just be so dangerous because they can defend everyone, they're just nasty. I watched a lot of them last year as a UCLA alum, and they're – I don't love their offensive foundation, but they can defend anyone. And if you can do that, as somebody who watched the Ben Halland UCLA teams, if you can do that, you can put yourself into almost every game.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so speaking – so, you know, starting with the Champions Classic, of course, this is part of ESPN's 24-hour marathon – And I always laugh at the 24-hour marathon because I think as a sports fan, it's always entertaining whenever there's any sport that's on during a weekday, in the middle of the day, you know, if it's the Olympics, if it's the first round of the Masters. I mean, it's certainly – it's always amusing when there's a real game on during the day. I, I always say to people, I can't quite advise taking off work to watch the the 24 hour marathon. I think I think the 24 hour marathon is actually perfect when they you know they show the the two small schools playing at 6 a.m. in the morning and the college students are all out in force watching it. Like I think it's a good decision to make when you're in college. Not necessarily such a, a good decision to make after that stage to to watch, you know to take off work and watch this college basketball is too you, you know it will actually hit more of its its take off work and joy stage with the. Uh, the holiday tournaments, which sort of follow up the 24-hour marathon. Because, as I said many times, the joy of college basketball is the sheer number of games. You can't get, you know, one game here or there, you know, it might live up to the hype, it might not. But once we start getting into these holiday tournaments and there are, you know, three or four good games on at a time on, you know, the ESPNs and the CBS Sports Network and even AXIS TV, uh, which has uh, some of the uh, Battle for Atlantis, you know, being able to to flip between all these games, you know, that's the pure joy of college basketball. And we're, you know, we're very, we're almost a very short time from that uh, getting underway.
1: What of those holiday tournaments or specific games within that frame are you most looking forward to?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it all starts, I mean, you know, it starts off with some good stuff at the beginning. I mean, just, you know, even stuff like Texas A&M versus Dayton between two teams that will be, you know, somewhere on the bubble in the Puerto Rico tip-off. But, The two tournaments, well, there's probably three that I'm most uh, looking forward to. The 2K Sports, which starts this Thursday, having Texas, Iowa, Syracuse, and California, all of whom I think, you know, will probably be tournament teams. Um, I think that's going to be a really good event. The Hall of Fame tip-off is actually the one that I think is the most interesting to me, although not necessarily to the casual basketball fan because – Massachusetts, Notre Dame, Providence, and Florida State all project as bubble teams. And this is a tournament that, you know, whoever goes 2-0 in that event, that could very well be their ticket to the NCAA tournament versus a team that goes 0-2 could, you know, have already sealed their fate in some ways just given um, where their roster's at. So uh, that Hall of Fame won. But, but probably for the casual fan, um, you know, clearly the event is uh, the battle for Atlantis this year. Which features Florida, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Oklahoma. Who, and I think it's worth noting, uh, Oklahoma. We got some got some fantastic news the last couple of days that uh, Tayshawn Thomas is eligible. I've certainly been saying I didn't think that was going to happen because certainly none of the explanations they gave me for applying for that waiver made any sense. But I can see that uh, that that he did get the waiver and. That that was the big hole in Oklahoma's lineup. You know they had four of their five positions were really clear that they had a quality player, but power forward was the one question mark. And getting Kayshawn Thomas to slot right in there is going to make them a much better team. So yeah, so I, I mentioned that. So you got Florida, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, and North Carolina as sort of the favorite teams. But that's a tournament that has UCLA and Georgetown as you know maybe the fifth and sixth best team. And when you have UCLA and Georgetown as your fifth and sixth best team in a tournament. It's a pretty darn good tournament.
1: So, Yeah, and and what I like about college basketball is that when you have those high-end games early, which college football often does not, is that it gives you a good benchmark for later on. And since college basketball, they play enough games that it's not like losing one game early is going to devastate your stock, that you can afford to play these challenging games. Let's say like Michigan State, they're not as good this year. They play Duke. If they lose, so be it. That's not a huge deal. And so you get to see teams actually challenge themselves early before – sometimes going into a lull or sometimes they keep it going and keep playing tough games.
0: That's exactly right. I mean, look, we. I, I guess I've gotten to the point where I've watched so many mismatches, so many cupcake games in my life that I really, I, I almost have to institute a rule that I just tell myself to turn that stuff off and not, not blow your, you know, not to burn myself out on, uh, on sort of unwatchable mismatches because these cupcake games early in the season can they can just be very very um sort of painful i mean as a, if you if you actually care about a team i guess there's something nice about winning but at the same time all these things do is make you nervous because your team only leads by six points at halftime and you feel like they should be by up by 15 already and you know they, they, there's not a lot of joy necessarily in those games but the, the the matchups against power conference opponents, um, getting a gauge on your team early, getting you know getting to see these holiday tournaments, that is a really fun thing, and you do hear a little bit of that in what the college football people are saying, you know where they're maybe punishing Baylor for strength of schedule or something like that. But that's what the NCAA tournament committee has done every year. Last year, most people thought SMU was a clear tournament team but the reason they weren't in the tournament is because they did not play enough power conference schools in the non-conference schedule. They had too many cupcakes, too many easy home wins, and so SMU was left out of the tournament. And so the committee has basically said, you know, look, here's the, we're not, our rule is not going to be pick the best 68 teams for the tournament. Our rule is going to be pick about the best teams and make sure to single one team out every year so that we ensure that early in the season you get some very good games to watch.
1: Yeah, I'm actually totally okay with that. And the other the other difference with it for me with, with the tournament is that it's very unlikely that any of those teams on the bubble were going to win the tournament. I would say in a lot of circumstances it's hard to see them making the Sweet 16, though it obviously has happened. And so while it is important, and I'm not going to discount that, it is a very different decision than, like, let's say, the the top four for the college football one right now.
0: No, and, and that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's really uh... – yeah, I mean, they, I mean, I think people will even, you know, point out at some point, like, whoever finishes fifth in college football this year, um, I'm assuming it's not going to be Florida State, they're not going to be undefeated, they would have had a, a path to get there or whatever, and that's certainly more than true with, with college basketball. I mean, making the tournament is vitally important to these coaches, it's vitally important to their fan bases, but there's, there's very few teams that can look at themselves as one of the, the first or last two teams out and say there wasn't more we could have done and and these are you know these are teams that have had flaws and and as you say it's not that they couldn't win a game or two against quality competition they've done that at times but they've also lost a very good number of those games against quality competition as well and so yeah it's that that is the the nice thing about the sport is that you're not going to make or break based on playing one tough opponent
1: one of the preview features that you did this year that i thought was i thought was really good was the projections on scores and rebounders and everything like that. And I was wondering when you were doing that, who you thought were candidates to, let's say, break out in the public consciousness. So they can be guys that you think are good that aren't famous yet, but will be five months from now.
0: Wow, that's a little um, bit of a tougher question. You know, we actually, uh, so I mean, I write a lot about uh, the tempo free stats and I actually got some of the pushback from some of the, you know, the the fans of that type of writing, who basically said, "Well, some of your breakout player candidates, some of the players that you're pointing out here, we already knew they were good because they were already efficient. They just needed more playing time in order to be good. So, who's going to be a surprise in terms of breaking out?" Um, you know, college basketball fans, as it turns out, are are really, um, you know, quite quite sophisticated in terms of knowing that. But I, to me, it, you know, so, so I think one of the things to me was working with the, the Sports Illustrated guys and working with Luke Wynn was really fantastic because, you know, it gave us a chance to incorporate a little, you know, I've always projected minutes sort of with a rule of, of thumb, or, you know, I have some regression equations that I run. But but being able to get some inside information into some of the rotation patterns and really, you know, see players who who maybe I wasn't quite as, you know, confident in. You know, so so you look at the breakout, you know, players list that we put out, um, one of the names was... Uh, Ohio State's uh, Mark Loving who was a guy who was sort of had a a high shot volume last season but you know he kind of played limited minutes and you just weren't sure would the coaching staff really trust him to get some more playing time this year if he did given how often he shot it sort of seemed likely that he'd start to break out more into the consciousness but we didn't you know we didn't when a player does sort of not getting a lot of playing time you, you wonder if that will happen and and Certainly, uh, he broke into the consciousness, or you know. So yeah, he he he's he's been starting. There's a there's a likelihood that uh, he'll he'll start to to show his name more. You know, a guy like Will Ortino of Creighton, who's been just a center for them. You know, hidden in the shadow of somebody like uh, Doug McDermott, but now that he's gone, um, he's going to get a lot more shots in around the basket, and he's already gotten off to a, lo- a nice start. I, you know, it's the problem is college basketball isn't about picking out one or two guys. I mean, if it was, you know, if it was picking out it, it's a hard question. Who are the draft folks going you know, to suddenly start to notice? I mean, I think somebody like Rashad Vaughn for UNLV is really going to have every opportunity to impress scouts and do everything this year. I mean, we, through the first two games, he's basically been the only guy who's been scoring for UNLV. And so I think his draft stock is going to grow because I think people are going to really see how he's leading that team, how he's getting a chance to, to take a ton of shots, be the, the man. But the reality is, you know, there's just so many college basketball teams. I mean, you can just go team by team and and point to the guys that you're interested in. I mean, I'm just randomly looking at teams on a sheet of paper. You know, UConn, I'm really interested to see how uh, Daniel Hamilton does, who's this freshman uh, sort of 6'7 guard that they have, because I think, you know, he's sort of the key to UConn reaching that next level. Um, This last year... I'm forgetting his name. All of a sudden, i head. They had a power forward in the NCAA tournament who really stepped forward and ended up inquiring to the draft somewhat unexpectedly. And you know, if, if Hamilton can fill a little of that role, maybe play some forward for them and give them a versatile inside-outside player, that could really take off. I mean, it's just you know, team by team. I mean, that's why we have so many projections that we did is because that it just. It's across the spectrum. There's there's going to be that's the beauty of college basketball. every year there are going to be a ton of new guys that are going to surprise you, and it, you know it's it's not just uh, one or two.
1: And one guy who's not going to surprise people, but I think the story is amazing is Chris Walker. So Florida is another team that I think will end up being good. And Chris Walker is technically a sophomore, but that's because he he played just this, he only played a little bit last year, and he he'll pr- presumably hopefully get a chance to really show his talent this year.
0: Yeah, so I'm really glad you mentioned that. Uh, I don't know if we'll see when we get this podcast up, but people listening to this might have already listened to it after the Miami-Florida game on Monday night. I think Florida's going to be in rough shape in that Miami-Florida game because Chris Walker's still suspended. Uh, Dorian Finney-Smith has a hairline fracture in his hand and Alex Murphy is not going to be eligible until Florida until the end of December. So Florida is really undermanned right now sort of to start the season. But, you know, you talk about where this team is going to be at the end of the year. I mean, they really do still have sort of McDonald's All-Americans in a number of positions. They really are loaded with guys who are all top 40 recruits sort of atop the bo- across the board. And, and I think, you know, don't, don't write off Florida based on what they do this time of the year. I think in March, Florida is really, really going to be dangerous.
1: And as somebody who's who's had weeks and months ruined by Billy Donovan, I just I'll, I can never bet against him. And their talent this year is really good too. Once they get it all together.
0: No, that's right. I mean, as you said, Chris Walker is you know he he was a guy that you know draft people. I mean, he was really too bad. I mean, it shows you the difficult. You know, I, I always hear I I never understand. I mean, obviously there's frustrations with playing time and things like that, but I never understand why anybody transfers mid season and you know plans to start for another team at the end of December, beginning of January. Because it's really hard to break into a set rotation. You know, when players have been playing for two months and they already sort of have roles, it's really hard to, to sort of find your way in there. And and Chris Walker is the greatest example of that in that huge athleticism, incredible player But he couldn't even, you know, crack the rotation for Florida because he joined in, in, you know, the beginning of January last season. And so, you know, now we get to see him from the beginning of the year. Yes, he's suspended a couple games here. But we're going to get to see him develop his game, be an integral part of their offense, and, and I think the sky is the limit.
1: Another team I wanted to ask you about, because it's their profile is just so weird, is Texas returned by the stat that you – one of the cool stats you used in the in the SI materials is returning minutes. They have returned, I think it was 94% of their minutes, but they also added a potential lottery pick in Miles Turner. Do you think that's going to work out as well as I think it might?
0: So let's talk about a couple things here. I think one of them is Kentucky-related on the same point is I think the key for Texas – it might be a little bit with the key for Kentucky last year that they didn't do that we talked about is – when you have such a big lineup, you should really play some zone and take advantage of that. And it'll be interesting to see whether Texas does this, because they were a very good defensive man-to-man team last season. But, you know, their best lineup is going to have a lot of big guys on the floor and being able to put sort of big guys out at those, you know, wing positions, use their, their width or their reach to be able to swat balls away. It'll be really interesting to see whether Texas sort of takes advantage of that or if they just stick with a, a more traditional a defensive lineup so i love texas i mean as, as people point out you know having all these returning minutes and miles turner who has been coming off the bench actually the first couple games but you know he certainly looks solid in the time that he's been on the floor my issue with them is still the off-guard position you know i think a lot of people view texas as a top 10 team right now but they're uh, all the most of the teams in the top 10 i would say i can tell you five or six guys who are going to play who are you know basic guarantees texas and off-guard doesn't really have a good off guard. They've been playing um, this guy, Holland, who is a good defensive player, but he really doesn't have much of a shot. And that might work. I mean, you know, not having, you know, you you can afford to have maybe one offensive liability on the court when you have so many skilled players. But, you know, I I think that if there's one weakness for Texas, it's going to be the outside shooting and not having an off guard who can really space the floor. Because if you have a bunch of really talented guys around the basket, but everybody just, packs it in the paint, plays four guys right around the basket, and dares you to shoot threes, and you don't have that three-point shooter, it could hold you back. But, you know, there's plenty of talent there, and they're going to win a lot of games.
1: I was going through the rankings, and I noticed that in terms of the defensive numbers, that Ohio State and San Diego State had pretty ridiculous estimates, not in terms of them being off, but just are those teams going to be fun to watch, or is it just going to be brutal? Uh,
0: No, so, I mean, look, I I, I mean, I think – I think the Ohio State thing, the following thing is what I would say. Everybody assumes that, you know, Aaron Kraft was this superstar, wonderful, overhyped whatever player. But, you know, Sad Mata wasn't just doing this in the Aaron Kraft years. He's had really good margin of victory. He's had really good defense in the years prior to that. You know, he had some players like Greg Oden and things like that 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 helped with that process. But, you know, this is not, you know, Ohio State's first rodeo. And so to say that when when Sad Mata has eight – top 100 athletes, uh, a transfer like Anthony Lee, who's averaged 13-8 and eight for Temple in a power conference uh, last year, uh, you know, he still has plenty of pieces to work with. And so, I, you know, I think they're going to be able to continue to shut teams down. Their, their, their defense I actually have falling off quite a bit from last season, but it's still – given a coach as good as him and the athleticism they have, there's no reason to think their defense is going to become horrible. And, and, and we saw San Diego State, although they lose uh, Xavier Thames, who was a phenomenal offensive player, San Diego State has basically everyone else back in that rotation. And, you know, you're, you're talking about a team that last year, really all the games were that brutal, where teams just could not score on San Diego State uh, under any circumstance. And, and given their personnel, I would expect to see very much the same thing this year.
1: As an alum, I'm required by law to ask you what you think of UCLA this year.
0: I mean, I think you've probably heard what many people have said about UCLA, which is I love their starting their starters, but I'm just really concerned about their lack of depth. And it's it's not even – if if they make it through the season with who they have, I think they're going to be okay. But it's really, you know, if, if one guy gets injured for UCLA or somebody doesn't pass their classes or something like that, you really run into a level where – you're just desperate in terms of who you're putting out there on the court. The, the UCLA has six guys who really project um, as quality players. I think Welsh has been coming off the bench as sort of the sixth guy besides the five starters. And those six, you know, I feel very confident when they're on the floor. But the drop-off to the two or three um, primary bench guys that they're going to use is, is just pretty steep. And, you know, I, which is to say – things can click with with shorter rotations, I mean Wisconsin this year probably is going to use a seven man rotation, so we can definitely be and one of those seven for Wisconsin is going to be Zach Schulwalter, who's more of a defensive that's that's his primary role so it's it's not to say you you know it can totally work where you're going with a short rotation, those guys build chemistry, they play together, they do stuff but it's there's just a huge huge risk that if if you know I forget, and forget the injury or somebody doesn't pass their classes. Just what if one of these guys just isn't ready to take on a larger role? Uh, you know, a number of these guys are freshmen, and if they're, they project high because they, of where they came out of high school, but if, as it turns out, when they get out of the basketball court, one of them just is a little raw and needs another year, UCLA can't afford to give them that another year. They're going to play. So that, that's really the risk for the, for the Bruins.
1: That makes total sense. I've been trying to figure out a parallel for Frank Kaminsky, and I've been having a lot of trouble. Do you have any in mind of a guy that his year, let's say this year, will re- will reflect?
0: You know, it's it's difficult because, it, it's, I mean, I would probably say, you know, he, I think he, he probably projects more as one of these international uh, big guys because it's the international game where you really see seven-footers who are willing to step out and take three-point shots. It's not, that's not something we've seen a lot of in college basketball traditionally. I mean, you know, the last player who was sort of big and and was more on the perimeter than people expected was Kevin Durant, and I'm certainly not saying he's at Kevin Durant's level, but, but college basketball just generally doesn't have a lot of guys who are so comfortable on the perimeter and so comfortable inside who are seven feet tall. So it's he, he really is a unique player, and it'll, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see how he does this year and and how that translates uh, into a league that's. You know, certainly the NBA is going to be a lot more physical than what he sees in college uh, basketball. So, you know, the, the, there's still questions about he could use to add strength uh, without losing some of his skill. Uh, so, it, it, it'll be it'll be interesting, no matter what happens.
1: Plus, he's going to be ludicrously efficient this year. I feel like somebody's going to get sold on him and at least give him a shot in the NBA because, yeah, his what he puts out this year is going to be kind of. Hilarious in a way, because it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting package, a package that we haven't really seen much before.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think now. Yeah, now that you mention that again, I I feel like uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name here, but one of the Gonzaga uh, big guys um, from from recent years.
1: Olenek. Yeah,
0: Olenek. I think you know he he was parallel, but but Olenek. I mean, but but you know. <laughs> Kaminsky has has done things against quality competition that Olinik did a lot more against, uh, you know, sort of weaker WCC teams. Um, where, you know, for, for whatever you want to say about Kaminsky, and you know, he could use to add strength to play in the NBA or things like that. He played a lot of really physical, tough Big Ten teams that were interested in shutting him down, and he still put up really good numbers. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, his you know his points per game is always a little down because Wisconsin plays at such a, a slow pace, but. Uh, you know, even even Miss isn't really a fair comparison just given the the quality of competition that uh, Kaminsky has played in, in at the college level.
1: I realized one more question that I have to ask you. It doesn't <laughs> have to be the team that you ranked first, but who do you think ends up winning the championship when all is said and done?
0: Yeah, I mean, so it's a fair question partly because, uh, you know, the rankings are partly based on formula. And, you know, Kentucky is going to come out at the top because they have sort of ridiculous depth. And it's a simulation. And you sit there and say – you know, even if one or two of these guys for Kentucky are busts, you know, that actually works out better because then they just settle on an eight-man rotation and, you know, things are, run smoothly and stuff like that. And so I, I don't think you can write uh, Kentucky off based on that. Obviously, I like but, – but, I mean, it's probably a little, you know, I'm a little in, inflated by, by what I've seen in these games. But, but right now I'm, I'm, I'm starting to, to get on the Duke train with the, the folks that have, have been on Duke all this time just because, you know, as you said, Short rotation, they're high-end talent. It's you know, it's it's hard for me to see teams that match up very well with Duke um, right now. And and if if Okafor and Jones and and Allen and Winslow continue to to play as well as we think they can, they, they'll be a. I you know, it's it's hard to see who could beat them.
1: That's a great point. Is is there anything else that you want to share with the listeners?
0: Nope, that's it. But thanks for having me on, and thanks a lot.
1: Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks again to Dan Hanner for taking the time to come on. You can read his season preview materials at Sports Illustrated, and you can read a lot of pieces. He just wrote a really good one for Real GM, and that's realgm.com. The other thing you can and should do is follow him on Twitter, at Dan Hanner. That's D-A-N-H-A-N-N-E-R. I love talking to Dan because I feel like I can hit college basketball in one shot with him, not to say that we haven't had other great guests on the subject. Jonathan Sharks in particular stands out. But I love that Dan knows everything so well that it feels comprehensive to talk to him, and it's a genuine pleasure to get to do that. I'm going to move more into the NBA in future podcasts. That is where I focus. I'm hoping to do one on the Sacramento Kings soon. I'm going to start getting into teams. Part of why we're going to hit a little bit of a low here is because I feel like you need 20 to 25 games to really evaluate anything. And while Nate Duncan and I had a lot of fun doing the overreaction podcast, really right now that is the realm that we're in and as much as i enjoy overreaction and i certainly do that isn't really where i want this podcast to be most of the time so if you have any comments guest suggestions or anything else you can hit me up on twitter at danieleroux d-a-n-n-y l-e-r-o-u-x or you can email me, Daniel.Larue@realgm.com. at realgm.com. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. I genuinely enjoy getting it, and it makes the show better. So thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. napa guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it instead let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level and with over 400,000 parts and a little napa know-how he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is it's not perfect but it's perfect for him that's napa know-how